In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Upfront. I'm Chloe Morgan. And I'm Rachel O'Sullivan. The winter break is here, so it's time for our mid-season review. Uh, we're going right through the WSL table and discussing the biggest storylines of the season so far, so stay tuned. Before we go any further, a heads up that we're back on Boxing Day. Yep, we never sleep. We just, we're addicted to women's football. We keep saying that we need more breaks and then we just decide to come into the office on the 26th. That's right, the WSL might be stopping, but we're going to still be bringing you episodes throughout the Christmas periods. We'll be counting down our top five stories of the year on that episode. So tune in and find out what those are. But today, now the winter break is finally here, we are bringing you our WSL mid-season review. <sighs> Rach, right, moment of the weekend, mate. What are we saying? There's just so much, so much spiciness happening this weekend. Well, I would have said um, Spurs' goal because it was such a beautiful team goal and it, you know, it resulted in them winning the North London Derby for the first time. And then Liverpool turn mm-hmm. around and go, Oh, my beer, mate. That's not going to be the biggest shock of the weekend. <laughs> we are also going to throw the cat amongst the pigeons, which is the second time I've said that this morning and is now my phrase du jour. Um, I just think the two upsets. I just think it's great. It's really mm-hmm. exciting. It's made for, you know, a really exciting end to this half of the season. And I'm all the more excited for the beginning of next half. What about you? Nice. I really like that. Um, I would have to go for, surprise, surprise, the Mary Earp save. Uh, despite Man United obviously winning, uh, losing <laughs> that game quite horrendously, it was the save that kind of um, point blank, tipping it over the bar to kind of like keep things like competitive. Um, 
yeah, I just I just thought it was another moment of brilliance from her, and I just really appreciated it from a goalkeeping perspective. And also on another goalkeeper note, Hannah Hampton making her debut for Chelsea. I thought that was a magical moment for her, and keeping a clean sheet, which is unreal. I thought you were going to say Votakova. Votakova getting player of the match. No, and you no, that. you know, no. I pick wow. and choose my goalkeepers. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm fairly unbiased. Right. Let's get stuck in. It's a really tasty weekend. We have kind of, you know, got to the almost halfway point. The halfway point is going to be on the 21st of January. We've come back after the winter break for that 11 out of 12 games. But the current picture, Chelsea, three points ahead of Arsenal and Man City. Arsenal had recorded seven successive league wigs in a row, beating Chelsea. But then... Lost 1-0 to Spurs on Saturday for the first time in their history at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium in front of a crowd of around 20,000 people. I mean, they had 31 shots to Spurs' five, which is the highest and lowest respectively in a WSL game this season. I mean, Rachel, what did you make of this? Because this is this was a huge, a huge moment. I mean, for me personally, when we played at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, it was the first game that the women had played at that side in 2019, our first debut season in the WSL. And we knew that, for some reason, the marketing team at Spurs were like, yeah, do you know what? It's their first game, first big game, first big game at the stadium. They've just entered the WSL. Let's whack them against, you know, WSL Titans, Arsenal, and see what happens. And we had that record-breaking crowd, which is absolutely amazing. Like, friends, family, like, the atmosphere was incredible. But also, we knew on balance, 99.9%, unless, you know, something really, really ridiculous happened that we were going to lose that game. So then going into this, seeing this sort of four years later, this fixture now being completely the other way around, I think, for me, it feels like a real kind of, like, sign of the times, a sign of Spurs' development in this league and, and where they've got to. And I feel like we've kind of seen that steadily throughout this half of the season. But, yeah, it just felt like one of those, like, go on, gals. You finally made yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, you guys only lost 2-0, right, when you played in, in the Tottenham Hotspur ground the first time. Um, they drew the next time they played uh, at mm-hmm. Barnet, was it? The the old London Bees ground. Um, I think the last Ooh, one out was a, a heavier beating. But there's always, yeah, there's always been like an extra edge to the game. There always is, I think, with derbies. Um, but, you know, I feel like Arsenal have started ended the league the way they kind of ended the year the way they kind of started the season in that their lack of efficiency and quality opportunities was on show again um you know mm-hmm. i think Votakova made eight saves that day but still you know a lot of the opportunities there weren't loads of really like really good opportunities do you know what i mean there was is quite a few of them going wayward or straight at the keeper um, so I think it was a lack of a, of quality in terms of the actual finishing from Arsenal and the types of shots that they were creating. But I also think that was down to Spurs being so disciplined. Um, I think that's something that's improved massively since the Manchester City game. It's something they've learned um, because I, you know, spoke in the past about them recognizing moments in game where, where games where maybe they need to take the sting out of the game, not changing their style but recognize that there's moments where they're like okay we need to kind of sit back for five or ten minutes take the sting out of the game take the sting out of the opponent's attack but they were so disciplined in their defense against Arsenal and chose their moments really well and even the goal itself when I watched those first three passes around the back I was like what are they doing oh my god there's like they're under so much pressure but actually they got out of the Mm -hmm. press so well one of Arsenal's biggest strengths yeah and it was like the definition of a team goal back to front it was excellent um so yeah I think 
credit as well to Spurs for their discipline to the game plan and how they stuck to the game plan. Absolutely. I think, um, I mean, do we think that Robber has been the absolute defining, has been the part of the reason that they are now at this stage? Because, I mean, he was sort of saying, it, it feels like it's sort of um, a team that's kind of, I don't know, it feels like reinvigorated, like re-energised. Um, and he was sort of saying after the game that, you know, it's been the last few weeks have been really hard. We've had hard opponents. It's been really tricky. Like self-confidence has been quite low, but the players have just kept working and you can see that today. He said Arsenal, very good team. They pushed us back, but we were able to play them out and the goal is evidence of that. I mean, at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium to score a goal, it was brilliant. And you can tell how much it, it meant to him. But I think, like you said, Rach, that the goal... The fact that, you know, Spurs weren't afraid to play out, that, you know, the Spurs that I saw four years ago, it was, you know, whack it long, put the goal kicks long, you know, get the ball away from the back. It was basic foot, it's sort of basic level strategy in a way. And now it's like, OK, well, we know Arsenal are going to press. We know we're going to have to figure out ways of, of getting past that. And the goal came off the back of that. And what a goal it was. I mean, who else but Marta Thomas? And I think it was just such a, do you know what? We're underdogs, but we're going to do it this time. Um, yeah. Would you say that Robert's been a big part of that, do you reckon? A hundred percent. I think we're seeing it as well with the likes of Leicester. When a manager a tactically, like a manager who's very good tactically gets the team on board and trusts the process because oftentimes mm-hmm. when you're going through as a team, a new manager, a new style of play, you'll see times where players will just, you know, throw the game plan out the window and revert back to what they're used to because it's what they're, they're under pressure and they're, they're maybe not as bought into the game plan or as confident as the game plan, where I feel like Robert has really got the team bought into a style of play. And he openly speaks mm-hmm. in the media about sticking to that style of play, which will mean the players will not feel when they're under pressure that they need to move away from it to try and get a better result because they're so all on board with it. If the manager's you know, drilling at home, telling the media, we're bringing in a style of play, it's going to work for us, you need to trust the process then the players are going to be fully bought in as well. So he's been a massive part of it. And I, I know we talk a lot about the growth of the game and the, the improvements of players and, and quality of players, but there's a huge improvement of managers as well, I think, across the game and tactical brains um, and managers who's an and analysis that's really benefiting teams nowadays. And we're seeing that through mm-hmm. tactics. We're seeing that through Liverpool. Matt Beard is so tactically smart. We're seeing how they can make games really, really difficult for teams you know, and it's sticking to a game plan and, and players being fit enough to stick to a game plan for 90 minutes. And I think that's made a massive difference. Absolutely. And I think off the back of that, obviously, it was quite nice to actually have the midweek Conti Cup fixture where Arsenal were playing Spurs again to kind of see, you know, just what Spurs are about. I mean, they absolutely put Arsenal to the test in that game, obviously taking them down to penalties and Arsenal getting that extra point for the penalty shootout. But I mean, the fact that Spurs were creating chances, you know, being really like dynamic, they were, you know, all different types of goal scorers, all different opportunities that were coming in from the left and the right hand sides. And I thought, do you know what, this is a completely different Spurs. But I think we've got to talk about like the consistency of Arsenal and sort of how we've kind of seen them go from like this massive, massive high at the Emirates at the weekend, obviously beating, just destroying Chelsea at the weekend, going into this Conti Cup fixture, having a real big struggle against um, against Tottenham midweek and then just about scraping that extra point and then going into this fixture now and then losing that game, which is, is a game that they obviously needed to pick up points again. I mean... Why are they struggling so much with this consistency now they've got quite a few of their players back to full fitness? You know, Mead's come back, Miedemar's come back, Lear Williamson obviously still out. We've got um, Laura as well, sort of waiting to come back probably next year. But I mean, they're, they're at, they're, to me, it feels like they're at a squad, they're a squad at almost full strength. That, that, that I don't feel like that's a proper excuse anymore. 
No, and like, it's hard to pinpoint why exactly the consistency is is a bit of a problem. Um, you know, I think arguably Medem has not back to full fitness yet, and it's going to take her a little while. Um, I think we've seen how well Beth Mead has come back and how quickly she's come back. That's not normal. That's not a traditional comeback. I think for players who've injured their ACL, it tends to take a little while. Um, and Viv Medema has spoken about how much of an overthinker she is, and I think that will also mean maybe her recovery and her her comeback won't be as quick. So I wouldn't say that she's back to full fitness, but they have enough strength and depth in that squad to not be able to use that as an excuse. Um, So I don't know, Chloe, I think there's an element of, you know, maybe players not being entirely in form. I think there's an element of other teams, you know, recognizing how to set up against an Arsenal as well. Um, I think we saw early on how much Arsenal kind of over-relied on going wide and sending crosses in. And it was almost like, you know, as I said earlier, when things aren't going their, their way and a team defaults to something, it's almost like Arsenal kind of default a little bit to that. Um, and I think their in-game, like working out problems in-game isn't as good as we've seen it in the past. Um, you know, so I think when they come up against a problem, sometimes they struggle to to figure it out. And I think we saw that against Tottenham. Um, because then equally we'd seen against Leicester when, when Arsenal went direct, what a difference that made. Um, so perhaps mm-hmm. it's around tactics, perhaps it's, you know, because Jonas Eidevel can get his tactics spot on, other times he doesn't. Um, so it could be an element of that as well, recognising those moments in games and how to shift it. Um, arguably the Conti Cup, both teams used it for different reasons. You know, I think Arsenal used mm-hmm. it to get more playing time for more players. You know, they made something like eight changes at the weekend. Tottenham Hotspur, I think, saw it as an opportunity to test out uh, their style of play. And, and, you know, they had Kit Graham in that defensive midfield role because they've got quite a few injuries to their midfield. And that's an unusual position for her to play. But actually, she did a really good job of it. And she got an opportunity to play it against Arsenal and Conti Cup. So when they played them in the North London Derby at the weekend... She was really, really good. So it's, I thought it was interesting how the two teams used the Conti Cup before the North London Derby. And I think Spurs actually just did it better. But I think it, it, that was on that. I just think it was really odd that they actually... Because Jess Naz obviously was switched out for Bethany England for this game. and then. Um, but I do think it was a weird one because Jess Naz had such a good performance midweek against Arsenal. I think she was so bright against them. So I feel like I'm actually disappointed on her behalf because I think she actually deserved to start on, on Sunday. But we are now seeing rumours of Mary Earps possibly heading to Arsenal. That old chestnut has popped up again uh, for the January transfer window. Nothing really, you know, absolutely pinned oh, on on that. Just go, will you? For God's um, sake. <laughs> I think it's that. But also I'm like, Man United aren't going to let you go. And we're going to see the same thing happen like Russo last year, where she probably just goes on a free anyway. And Manchester United lose however many hundreds of thousands of pounds because they've negotiated this very badly. So... That's pending in January. Can't wait to see how that all unfolds and collapses. Um, Right, moving on. Chelsea beat Bristol City 3-0. Can't say I was expecting any different result on this, but the standout points, I think, for me, I mean, Lauren James... Obviously, coming into the fold off the back of what is probably quite a personally very difficult week for her, um, you know, obviously with all the controversy that happened to the incident, the Arsenal game and, um, you know, Chelsea being really outspoken. Emma Hayes has been really outspoken. Um, Leah Volte has kind of stood up and sort of made comments about how she supports Lauren James through all the, you know, the, the racist and um, other abuse that, she, that she's been receiving. So I think it was quite a big moment for her to then step on and have the performance that she did and score that absolute 
banger. Um, I mean, Rach, you were there. Like, how? How? What? What was the crowd's reaction when when all that took place? I mean, there was a, a really good crowd there at Bristol. They had over nine thousand at Ashton Gate, which I think is brilliant. Um, the the Lauren James goal was so midweek when they played Hacken and Chelsea drew with Hacken. Um, Emma Hayes kind of rude their lack of technical ability. So it wasn't so much she felt that they tactically got it wrong. It was just their execution. Um, and I think Lauren James heard that and said, I'm going to show you an absolute beautiful goal that is so technically well executed. Um, and I think she did that. The kind of, there was so little backlift. Um, you know, the way she got around her player, let put, put the ball out and, and kind of just fired. But there was so much pace on it. Nothing the goalkeeper could do. An absolute beautifully technically executed goal. Um, it was brilliant to see. I mean, I'm not sure the crowd are necessarily going to enjoy that, all 9,000 of them from Bristol, but I'm sure the away fans did. Um, but yeah, brilliant for her to get that goal and kind of get Chelsea up and running. Um, Bristol City were resilient, you know, and I think people could have expected a higher scoreline um, against Chelsea, but they defended well. They didn't kind of just entirely bank up. They had opportunities themselves. Hannah Hampton had to pull off a couple of really good saves, you know, on her mm, debut. She did well. It was a really good one-on-one with Morgan. Um, and I think what Chelsea shows, yeah, I think what Chelsea shows, and, and we know this from Chelsea, is they can play different types of matches, they can be in different types of situations and still get the win. And I think that's all down to their experience within the squad. Um, and, and they're mm-hmm. they're recognising the moments where they maybe need to make changes or they need to technically pull something off. They can learn from a draw midweek really quickly and implement it into the game against Bristol. And I also think that win for them is really important then before they go and play Hacken again in Gothenburg this week, um, because they arguably need the win there. Um, so I think the fact that they had another team that they had to pick apart was really good for them because it, they would have had very little prep time between all of these matches and actually playing a similar style, I think would be really beneficial. So another glorious goal from Aaron Cuthbert um, and then a girl Kirby Kerr kind of combination for the third as well for Kerr to get that. So um, they'll be delighted with that. But I still think... Hats off to Bristol. I think they they did well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, I just want to throw back there to the sort of Hannah Hampton rotation. I think that was a bit of a stroke of genius from Emma Hayes. I think it was absolutely the right moment for her to step in to make her first WSL debut uh, with Chelsea. Um, obviously, Musevic, uh, AKB, 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 AKB um, have been in uh, for them this season. <laughs> but I think it was just the, the right time for her. And the, I think it was a confidence builder. I think on balance, it was a relatively low risk game given sort of where Bristol City currently sit in the table and I think um, yeah I just feel that was a really nice thing to have done and then going into the game obviously you know giving the other keepers a chance for a bit of rest before they go into to the game tomorrow but I mean do we think now given where they sit at the, at the top of the table it's we there was, it was thrown into doubt I think a little bit last weekend prematurely perhaps but it did feel like a you know a very big loss an uncharacteristically big loss and then going into this weekend kind of feel like they've kind of like maybe put some of that doubt to bed a little bit because their their performance was so consistent and so strong. But do we now think, okay, well, we're back to the kind of the same narrative that Chelsea are just going to walk away with the title again? I still think Chelsea are going to win it, but I still think potentially they're going to drop points along the way. Um, and BBC did an article this week kind of looking at the data and, and stuff like that around the, the league so far. And, you know, it, it is arguably one of the closest. I think they projected that Chelsea could finish the league on something like 55 points or the, or something along the lines that they're getting less 
um, points per game kind of situation. So basically the whole, it's implying that it's a lot closer, a lot closer at the top, a lot closer at the bottom. Um, I still feel like Chelsea have it in them to win it. Um, and I think they will have more difficulty. I think other teams, not just the top three, top four are going to give them trouble. We've seen that. They'll know that. Um, and it will be a real test to them to see how they can come up against those kinds of battles. But I still feel like they are going to edge it in the end. Are you still thinking Arsenal? Um, I still think Arsenal are definitely in with a very good, strong chance. I'm not writing Arsenal out at all. I think, do you know what? I think it's going to come down to another sort of last one or two games of the season. And I absolutely love that kind of like drama that comes in May where you just do not know where the hell that trophy along the M25 or the M1 or whatever it is is going to go um, but I think for me I think the consistent thing about Chelsea has always been their sort of defence I think bar the four goals that they conceded with um, Arsenal which like completely destroyed um, their goals against Tally I mean I think they're on seven going into that game and now they're on 11 um, and now they're sort of in the same kind of goal difference as Liverpool and Spurs which I think is really unusual but I feel like that goal that that game was a bit of an anomaly but I mean when you look at the fact that I know Bright's sort of still coming back from this like niggle and stuff but you've got Mieldy you've got Carter you've got Nuskin you've got Lawrence you've and barred the Arsenal game where I think that absolutely flipping fell apart it disintegrated like paper mache and acid um I think actually that that's been their biggest asset for me um <laughs> and yeah I don't I don't really see that that changing too much, to be honest. Um, moving on, Man City continued in their groove with a Bunny Shaw hat-trick. I mean, honestly, who else? Uh, helping them to a 4-1 win over Everton. They've drawn with Chelsea, have beaten Man United and should have probably got more out of a 2-1 loss to Arsenal in which they dominated massively in large spells. I mean, United, on the other hand, looked... And it pains me to say... Clunky as hell after losing to Liverpool. Um, yeah, I mean, they've dropped 12 points already. They only dropped 10 across the entirety of the season last year. But for me, like, why is that consistency, like the inconsistency sort of creeping in now? Or do we actually think it's just because of the competitiveness, we keep sort of going back to this argument, but the competitiveness of the teams like Liverpool, like Spurs, are kind of throwing up these, you know, results where it's becoming more difficult to predict how some of these games are going to go. I mean... For me, when I sort of look at Man United's season last year, do we feel like maybe there's kind of like an element of fatigue creeping in? I mean, you've got obviously a lot of the United, I think you've got about five of the United squad obviously being with the England camps, you know, competing in the Women's um, Champions League for the first time, competing in the Women's Nations League. I mean, but then also you've got the consistency of, I think the top four teams now are just dropping these points. I mean, you've got Chelsea losing dramatically to Arsenal. You've got Arsenal then losing dramatically to Spurs. You've got United then losing dramatically to, to Liverpool. And you just can't sort of predict what's going to happen. And I think it just goes to show, like you said, Ray, sort of where some of these sort of middle table teams now are causing these sort of... what we, They're not even upsets. They're just competitive. Um, yeah. What Do you think there's anything else sort of related to, to Man United's form? No, I don't... I... I think it's a combination of things. Um, I don't think the players playing for England can be an excuse because all of the top four teams have that. A lot of the teams right down the league have international players in their teams and players who were involved in the World Cup. But I think it's a combination of, you know, maybe fatigue, um, new players coming in, taking a while to settle. 
Um, you know, I know we've seen teams losing despite dominating games. I think that's what's frustrating about Man United is that sometimes it's their own undoing. Um, so there are elements of other teams like Liverpool, I thought, in the second half, especially they really grew into the first half. But Man United in the beginning of that game should have had the game put to bed. So sometimes it's an element of their that own... Mallard miss. Oh, you know, and, you know, it could be tactics. It could be, you know, the right players at the right time, that kind of thing. Um, I think there's probably a number of, of issues. Um, Mark Skinner spoke about the team's desire or kind of lack of, um, and really was quite pointed in his comments about the transfer window um, and needing players. So that was interesting. But yeah, I think they've been frustrating Man United um, and they're potentially at times dropping points against teams you don't expect them to drop points against. And and that's kind of what trips you up when you're fighting for top three finish are those little moments where you think that one point drop there could be the difference. Man City, conversely, I think have had a good run since the Brighton game. And that was a bit of an anomaly. Uh, and again, we've seen it sometimes where Man City aren't doing as well as they should, you know, with the quality that they have. Um, but again, they look settled. Uh, I think the fact that Buddy Shaw is back, you know, to her absolute firing best is brilliant to see. That would be brilliant for them. It's almost like the break has come at the wrong time for Man City because they've got this momentum now and we know how good Man City are with momentum. Um, I think they've got the fixtures that they've got when they come back. They'll be, you know, relishing. I think there's opportunities there for them to continue to pick up more points and continue that momentum. So they could be quite dangerous in that title race in the second half of the season, I think. But then you kind of look at the fixtures they do have in January and you're thinking the first game back is Liverpool. Obviously, Liverpool just done the business this weekend. The second game back after that is Spurs, who have also just done the business this weekend. I mean, those games you would have necessarily thought, OK, we've got a good chance of picking up points here. But also those could prove to be the ones where a team like Man City becomes unstuck. Um, but yeah, I've got to agree. I think with like Man United, what I've seen is these kind of these games of not I wouldn't say brilliant. I think they've got the job done but I think there has been these kind of really um, pivotal moments in games that, that, that have been missed opportunities for them like the Mallard big miss I mean then the turn ahead are against the bar and you just think actually like they're, those are the moments that are going to win you those games and those are the moments where you're the least consistent so um, yeah I am a little bit worried about them I don't necessarily think that this could be the kind of, you know, going from second place last season and sort of, sort of you know, taking it to the wire with Chelsea and there only being two points between them to then going this season and thinking, there's a chance here that you might not actually get that Champions League spot. Um, it does feel um, a little bit humbling for me. So, mm. um, yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna rein it in with, um, you know, how sort of big I've gone on United you? and maybe even I'm... consider switching to Arsenal. I don't yeah, believe Yeah, no, that. I'll try. I'll no, try. I don't believe I'll try. it. <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
I would like to start the next section with a song because I'd like to kind of throw it, you know, mix it oh up a little gosh. bit. I didn't really have that opportunity at the beginning of the episode. You didn't give it to me. Um, so I would like to start uh, yep, sorry, <clears throat> sorry. this section. Mm, go on. Yeah. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Chloe. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> Is that okay? Well, let's do that. Thank you, me. I really, really appreciate that. Thank you for telling everyone that I have gotten even older today. Yes. Um, yeah, it's been a magical, a magical day. Sat here in Copenhagen um, trying to have a, a romantic weekend with the girlfriend, obviously. Although I, I hope to do with the girlfriend. Got me. God's sake. <laughs> it's just me. This is what she wrote in her card today earlier. Happy 34th birthday. I hope you have a nice day in Copenhagen. As if Aww. we weren't spending it together. <laughs> That was so heartfelt, Chloe. <laughs> also, I like that you're anyway. catching me up in age, so that's good. Thank you, mate. I really appreciate that. Honestly, yeah, it's um, I, I do, I do feel wiser. I'd say that's more weird. mature. Yeah, yeah, mm. which is bizarre. Right. Moving swiftly on from that, the current picture, just 10 points now separate leaders Chelsea and Tottenham in six. And that gap has kind of varied between 12 and 15 points over the last three seasons. So it's definitely getting closer. But Liverpool have been the best of the rest so far this season and are on level points with United. I mean, Rach, how do you think they've kind of turned their fortunes around? I mean, we sort of look at some of the signings that they've had this summer. We look at the fact that they're now in this like elite training, gra- uh, training ground, Melwood uh, training ground. I mean, last season, um, they finished seventh place. This season, Matt Beard says that they're targeting a fifth place finish. The seasons even before that, I mean, they've just come out of obviously the championship. I mean, do we think now that Liverpool are in this kind of rise to the top in the likes of, you know, what we're seeing sort of, I feel like Man United, Liverpool and Spurs are almost kind of sitting in this kind of like gap together. This kind of like elite best of the best type vibe. Yeah. Well, I'd I'd keep Man United in the top four. Um, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves like maybe we have done in the past with other teams. But yes, Liverpool are doing very well. We're starting to see the benefits of their training ground. A lot of it's down to Matt Beard. Huge credit has to go to him. Mm. He's a very, very good manager and he does he's able to get the best out of his players. I think he's building a really good squad. I think there's some good youth in there that have been there for a while, but I also think he's brought in some experienced heads as well, which massively helps that. Again, an example of a team really buying into a style of football. We've seen the odd kind of slip every now and then, particularly that second half against Chelsea, but we're going to see that with these teams. They're on a journey and it's not going to be perfect the whole way. They're not just going to keep improving, improving, improving. There's going to be weekends where they lose games you expect them to have won and then they'll turn around and, and they'll absolutely nail their game plan and they'll get it absolutely right and they'll take points off one of the top four. Um, and I think we're seeing that with more teams. So Spurs, similarly, I think Liverpool and the Spurs at the moment are the kind of upsetters, are the... What was the word I used to use for Aston Villa? The disruptors. Um, disruptors. Yeah, I think we're seeing a little bit of that from them. And I just think time is what's needed because I think that is going to massively help. And I also think they're becoming an att- a really attractive prospect in the WSL for other players. So I'm intrigued to see how they do, not just in the January transfer window, but in the summer as well, because I think what both teams are doing right now is very exciting um, and will be something I think a lot of players will want to be involved in. 
It's that, I think with Liverpool, they're, they're still that inconsistent team. But when you look at sort of like the performance they had this weekend, I mean, you really don't know what's going to happen. And then all of a sudden they pop up and it's Taylor Hines, of all people. I mean, that was her first WSL goal and that ends up being the winner. Since and you're like, what, February 2022 20, or something, yeah. Yeah, like wild. <laughs> like, it's just like, what could, you know, if you could pick a more random winner, like, yeah, it's just that. But yeah, I think they're exciting because you just don't know what they're going to produce week in, week out. But I think of a similar vein then, you kind of look at a team like Aston Villa. We've given them so much kind of attention this season, but not for the right reasons. They started off obviously so badly, lost the first five games. It felt like Carla Ward was going to be under serious amounts of pressure if they were going to sort of go on and, you know, keep on this this losing streak. I feel like they're slowly now turning their fortunes around. They've got these nine points. That's three wins out of the last five games. And they're sort of four points now off the bottom. But four points is absolutely nothing. Four points is is a couple of weekends. I mean, do we think they're sort of now safe and finding their feet again? Or do we think actually like this, that they're still going to be one of those ones that we're going to be talking about in the relegation zone? Because when I look at the past kind of few performances they've had, bar Man City, they are still getting most of the possession. I mean, their possession stats are in and around sort of like the low 60s. They're still getting shots on target. They're still kind of sort of semi-dominating games in a way, but just not being able to find those results and dropping points that last season they wouldn't, they, they would have cleared up. Um, yeah, do we think this is going to continue or do we think actually, you know, this is them for the rest of the year and it's just going to be one of those write-off seasons. They, it's just a, a bad one and they go again next year and sort of have a clean slate. Well, I, I don't think it's necessarily going to be as good as last season. However, what Carla Ward said to me post-match was that they're one point off where they were this time last season, which I think is really, really interesting given the conversations we've been having about them because they had a very good second half of the season. Um, and I think you got to factor in that they played Arsenal, Chelsea, Manchester City, Manchester did they play Manchester United as well like you know in those first few games they were some big name teams um I think they'll be obviously really glad of getting that win against Brighton they should have scored more goals they were wasteful in front of goals but they absolutely dominated I think Brighton also had an off day but I think the break has come at a good time um you know Carla spoke about a a good number of injuries they had before the game. And there was a couple of players on the bench who were coming back from injury. So I think that break will be really valuable for them. I think it'll be valuable to kind of sit and reassess the, the previous half of the season and go again. I think they'll be glad of the break because they'll try and put it as a, let's put that behind us. And we had a good second half last season. Let's do that again. Um, but yeah, that, that threw me when she said that because I didn't realize that they were only a point off um, because no, it's I just didn't. felt That's quite yeah, a shock. Yeah, it's just felt like a really bad season. And it's similar with like Everton. Everton, I think, are on the same points that they were on uh, this time last season. Um, if I remember, I think that's what Brian Sorensen said. I mean, we're just trusting these managers, but I believe it to be true. Um, so it's really interesting how our expectations vary for teams and um, and what, how we that kind of shapes the narrative when it means that that second half of the season could really throw us all over the place. I mean, that's okay. So the vibe generally for Aston Villa next year, we're thinking new year, new me, Huns, 2024 coming through. Big They're going to want that. Whatever yeah. happened. Yeah. Whatever happened last year, forget about it. Like they've written their new year's resolutions. They are absolutely washing that year away or like that half of the year, the September to, to December part of the year only. Um, yeah. Okay. All right. Fine. Well, if that's your prediction, Rach, we'll see. We'll see if it comes to fruition. 
Okay, so let's talk about the relegation zone just briefly. The current picture is Bristol City and West Ham are joint bottom. Brighton on three points, just sitting above them. I mean, this is the smallest gap that we've had for a good while. Seven and nine points separated the bottom three in 2022-23 season and in the 21-22 respectively. Everton are already six points from the bottom and they're in seventh. Uh, West Ham was saved by a last gasp equaliser from... Honoko Hayashi against Leicester on Sunday after Howard Sissoko got sent off a few minutes before. Um, we did like an article with Howard Sissoko back in the uh, off the back of the uh, the media day in September, and we were sort of saying, you know, she's the at that point she was the most red carded uh, player in the WSL. Yeah, but it was she like three, three cards. Yeah. Come on. Yeah, it's tiny, absolutely tiny. And when we're actually looking at the stats, because obviously she gets quite a lot of stick for being this sort of, um, you know, player who sort of, you know, gives a lot of crap, like takes a lot of crap, you know, you know, on on the pitch. And you just think, well, this isn't a good look. This is, you know, she, I think she wanted to get away from this perception of, you know, her being this sort of quite difficult player to to play against. And we were sort of looking at some of the stats around, you know, some of the tackles that she puts in, and she wasn't even in the top fifty of players who. Um, uh, who were getting sort of you know yellows and fouls and offences against against them. So it was just the red cards that sort of stood out. I think though we should also point out that that double yellow for Sissoko resulting in a red card was the third of the weekend because Neve Charles and Mazzucchio yeah. were also sent off this weekend. And I think for me a lot of those second challenges, particularly with Sissoko, because I think her yellow two yellows came within kind of three minutes of each other in injury time. Mm. They just feel like those kind of fatigued type challenges. I think it was similar with Charles. Charles had gotten away with quite a few from after the first yellow. And maybe she thought a bit lazy. I'm not pulling the I'm not getting pulled up. This is fine. And so I think there was probably an element of that kind of last gasp, you know, injury time. They had like eight minutes or something. I don't know how 10, 12 minutes of injury time. Um, And it was a silly challenge, but it wasn't like a reckless challenge. So I think Mm -hmm. sometimes one of the things that, and I'm going to refer to this BBC article again in, in regards to the relegation battle, but one of the things they spoke about is that games are lasting significantly longer this year. Mm. Um, they're lasting something like 10 minutes longer compared to last year on average, which is absolutely wild. Um, so I think that's something else we just kind of need to factor in in the back of our minds is that it's something else that players are are dealing with. When it comes to the relegation battle, now I think this... Um, point for West Ham was so important because they've probably been one of the biggest disappointments for me so far this season. Um, I've expected more from them, especially having seen them play live quite a few times and they've they've played some lovely football and that, that's what's frustrated me about them is their inability to convert their chances, but equally their consistency is is all over the place. What's interesting about the relegation battle though this year is that in previous seasons, so obviously we've got West Ham and, and Bristol both on five points. Um, when you look at previous years, so last year, obviously Leicester had zero points this stage last year. The previous year, um, it was Br- uh, Birmingham and Birmingham had something like two points, I think, um, at, at this stage. And then the previous year, it was Bristol and they had zero points at this stage. So it's interesting now we've got both teams on five points. You've got teams really close above them. You know, that relegation is at least four teams if not potentially five, that could get dragged into that. Mm-hmm. That's what I'd predicted at the beginning of 
the season is I thought this relegation fight could be really interesting and it's proving so well it's I think it's even more interesting that Bristol City play West Ham at the end of January I think that game is going to be super telling I mean out of the last four games uh, last five games West Ham have lost their last four Bristol City have lost three out of the five games I mean their fortunes aren't great but I think we always predicted at the start of the season that Bristol City were going to be the ones that struggled and I didn't think it was going to be West Ham so much like I think I almost thought that Brighton were going to be sitting not that they're safe I mean they're only three points clear of, of the bottom themselves but I think for me I always felt that actually Bristol City are going to be the ones that are going to struggle and, and they, they really have to you know find themselves out of anything but the relegation zone whereas the other teams I think have sort of managed to get themselves out for at least a week Bristol City has sort of gone up and gone down but stayed pretty much consistently down the entire time bar Aston Villa's you know obviously ridiculous start to the season which no one no one saw coming but um yeah I, I still think I, I still I still feel fairly confident in my prediction that it's Bristol City that are going to be going into the championship again which sounds really I, really I still think they're going to pick up points though you know, I think they're going to, we, we could, yeah, I think they're going to pick up points the second half of the season. They could get relegated, but they could be a team with the most points that gets relegated. Do you know what I mean? Ever? I, that's what I'm kind okay. of, I do think those teams in and around each other, I think that West Ham game could be really interesting because Bristol have shown that they can take, while they may not create too many opportunities, that they can take them. And West Ham, what's frustrated me about West Ham is that despite the new management the lack of consistency still seems to be the problem. Um, and just mm-hmm. the lack of being able to score goals because we saw that against Leicester, they were creating opportunities and they're just not putting them away. And it must be the biggest frustration as a West Ham fan because you're looking at them, you're bringing in some good young players, you know, some there's some good experience again in the squad. You're getting in and around the goal and you're hitting almost Mm -hmm. everywhere but the back of the net. It would do your head in, I imagine, as a West Ham fan because there are moments where you come out of games and you're like, how have we not won that? You know, when I watched that Aston Villa-West Ham game, West Ham deserved to win that game. They didn't, you know, and they they scored some lovely goals and still Villa come away with it. So it's going to be a tough second half of the season, I think, for them. They need to find the shooting boots. Maybe Santa Claus will bring a pair or two. Um, but yeah, I've been a little bit disappointed in, in Skinner's time there so far. All right, Rach, I feel like I'm going to have to call you out, mate. I mean, you were saying that Brighton were going to be the big WSL disruptors this season and it kind of looks like it's fallen flat. I mean, explain yourself, basically. Where do you think <laughs> they are not going the way that you thought they would be? Okay, I didn't say they were definitely going to be disruptors. I thought they might be up there. <laughs> um, I'm all right with that. I think what I think what we've seen from Brighton is still quite exciting. Um, and I can hold my hand up, hands up and say, maybe they won't finish in the top of the table. But like, I feel like what Mel Phillips is building there is quite exciting. And you're seeing flashes of it. You're seeing, again, a style of football being bled into the team, uh, players that are bought into it. But then you're still having those moments where <laughs> they throw the game plan out the window or, you know, they're not quite at the races. Um, but I've still been impressed with what we've seen. They've they've caused some upsets. They've taken four points from Manchester, which I think is really impressive. But like your Leicesters, um, perhaps your Liverpools, then when you expect them to go ahead and win against a team in and around them, that's where things seem to fall apart. But they've shown some exciting stuff. They were resilient against Man City. Um, they came back from 2-0 down against Leicester. You know, all of that experience is really going to stand to them in the second half of the season. And it's just, they're on a journey and again, need to be given time like some of the other teams. Um, but I'm excited for them. 
I think, well, I was just having a look just briefly then at sort of like, even though we're talking about sort of the relegation spot and who might be going down, I just wanted to have a look at the Women's Championship just to see sort of what the standings were and sort of how the current wild. sort of table looks in terms. And it is absolute madness. I mean, you've got Birmingham City, Charlton, Sunderland uh, in the top three. Birmingham City and Charlton on 23, Sunderland on 22, Crystal Palace on 21, but they have a game in hand against the above three. So it would only take a win for them in their next game to be propelled to the top of the the top of the table. But Burnham City seems to be absolutely smashing it. So I think it looks like, I mean, you absolutely can't call it. Even below Crystal Palace, you've got Southampton again on 21 points. I mean, I've never seen the championship look that tight. But I think we will try and sort of check in a little bit of the championship just to see sort of who will be stepping up. Obviously, two of them being relegated into the National League and two National League teams going into the championship as well. So I think that'll be interesting. Rach, we now have this massive, massive gap, uh, apart from obviously the game tomorrow, the, the Champions League games uh, going on tomorrow. Um, for the WSL, I mean, it doesn't return until the 20th of January. Um, we've not really spoken too much about this, but I think, you know, from our perspective, from a fan's perspective, I mean, what do you think about this big gap in the calendar? Do you think it's a positive? Do you think actually, you know, we all need this break? It's been, a, you know, two big summers of, you know, women's football. You have the Women's Nations League, you've had the Champions League, you're getting into the Conti Cup fixtures. It's been absolutely congested and wild. Or actually, do you think, oh, we're just getting into this like, really juicy part of the season, like big teams are dropping points, it's getting really dramatic, there's all these amazing games going on, and you kind of lose that momentum to so then go and kickstart it again back in January. I mean... Yeah, what are your thoughts on the big sort of four week four week gap of no games? We moan about it, but actually, are we going to miss well, it? I well, I will flag that there is FA Cup uh, on the fourteenth of Jan. Yes. I think. Um, so I'm a fan of the gap. I think I don't think we're okay. women's game is in a position yet to to start getting rid of that because you know I can't help but look at it from a player perspective. Like I know we're talking about it from us. Yes, I need a break too. I'm quite pleased. I'm excited about it. But from a player perspective, I do think they need the break. I think teams generally need the break. You know, we've got injuries across the league, fatigue. Um, I think it's really valuable. And also from a, you know, this isn't the men's game where they get paid loads of money and they can fly their families over to be with them around the Christmas time and everyone's all together and whatever. Most players are living that are from abroad or even in, within England are not living near their families right now. So actually, I think this break is really, really valuable from that perspective as well. They need time off with their families um, and, and partners and whatnot. So I am a fan of the break. It could be under threat should we see a, a, a bigger league, expansion of the league. And I know the calendar is obviously a big problem. But at the moment, I am protect, protect the gap. <laughs> Mind the gap. If you ask a lot of players, I think they're probably like, yeah, we absolutely need the break, especially the international players. You know, some of them coming, you know, flying in from Australia, America, you know, going home to see their families during this period is probably, you know, a massive, massive thing for them to just like decompress, get away from it, you know, reduce the intensity, the, the pressure and demand that they've, they've had on themselves for, for quite a long period of time. But I do, like you said there, kind of think, is this the last time we're going to see a gap of this size? I mean... You know, obviously, with so many unanswered questions about how Nuco is going to look, the league structure, are we going to see that sort of, you know, more teams going into to the WSL and the championship next year? Where are those fixtures going to fit? It's unlikely that going to fit. They might start earlier, I suppose. You might have it where, you know, they start a little bit earlier in, in September for those games or they might, I suppose, end a little bit later. But then I don't think that will take place next next year. 
sorry, the year after, when you've got 2025 for the Euros, I mean, it seems unlikely that they're going to sort of reduce those periods because obviously international players will need that break before they start the, the major international tournament. So it does feel like the sort of the, the best place to fit some of those fixtures is in and around sort of maybe late December or early January. No. Um, yeah, Mind so the gap. <laughs> we might not see that gap next year. Um on top of that, I think we've obviously just seen the news as well that the Arnold Clark Cup has been cancelled to make way for the Nations League. So that feels like it's less strain on the England players coming into to this gap. But I do, I do also feel like without the Arnold Clark Cup, I mean, for the Lionesses particularly, you know, they don't have, now that they're obviously out of the Olympics, it feels like actually there's no kind of like big, juicy international fixtures to kind of get stuck into. And we obviously saw, you know, you know, a couple of players that have just stepped up into the squad, Grace Clinton, you know, Kiara Keaton, you know, these youngsters who just about, just broken in and then like no football for them for like quite a long period of time, unless obviously like friendlies and stuff are, are arranged, which, which don't have, the, they don't carry the same kind of... Um, I don't know, competitive weight that obviously like getting stuck into a, a nice a nice tournament would be. I didn't think it was going to happen anyway. Once the Nations League came out, I think they would have had to make a decision quite early on because they had to organise other teams and stuff. So I thought the Arnold Clark Cup was going to become a bit of an every other year kind of tournament. Mm-hmm. We're still going to see friendlies in that window. And we've been crying out for friendlies because every international window has had so much riding on it. It's made it really difficult to rotate players and bring new players in. So... I'm fine with it. I'm quite looking forward to February. I'm hoping players will get a rest. We'll see some youngsters come up. We'll see some interesting friendlies. Um, and, you know, as I said, I've been I've been missing the friendlies and what that provides for international teams. So, yeah, I'm not too worried about it. And then England could get cracking once again in April when the Nations League or the European qualifying, I should say, comes back. And that's where they can get their teeth into some competitive fixtures. And hopefully that February window will have given them, and I think probably a January training of some sort as well um, will have given them some food for thought and potentially opportunities to bleed in some new players so okay alright that's made me feel slightly better about that <laughs> All right. I, was kind of look, I was looking forward to like a little February, like February blast a little like quick sort of you know week to week blow of like having this like weird tournament where you don't really know what teams are going to be competing until the very last minute and you sort of see these matchups and you sort of travel to you know the, the arse end of Milton Keynes or you know some other Norwich. sort of stadium <laughs> yeah Norwich yeah you could, you could could be going anywhere it's like an eeny meeny miny mo of random cities and random countries um, yeah I kind of I do miss the haphazard nature of it I suppose and, and obviously we've done so well in those tournaments um, but yeah okay I won't feel too disheartened there's going to be friendlies you're right okay let me not get into like some kind of you know sad Grinch mode about it no. um, but okay I think we've wrapped up pretty much everything we possibly possibly can from this weekend from this half of the season it's been a spicy one it's tight at the top it's tight at the bottom it's tight in the middle of the table um, but yeah I mean I want to say goodbye, but absolutely, we're back next week. Uh, Boxing Day to count down our top five moments of 2023. It promises to be a Christmas cracker. You didn't write that joke. Uh, that was not yours. I, I didn't. No, I didn't. I didn't at all. I wouldn't have. I don't have the wit and grace to write jokes like that. Thank you, producer Finn. Thanks for listening and happy holidays. However you're celebrating, remember you can find us on Instagram at x slash Twitter. I am at Morgie underscore eighty nine. Rachel is at Girls on the Ball, and we are at Upfront underscore Pod. You can also find us on YouTube at Upfront Pod. See you next week.
Upfront is a Stack Production and part of the Acast Creator Network.